Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the fourth Sunday after Trinity is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the psalm appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160, can be found on page 964 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember back when I was attending the Bible school, we were sent out as an assignment for your typical man-on-the-street evangelism interviews. These were fairly common standard practice in Bible school 20, 25 years ago. You were sent either to a mall or to a park or some other public place with the goal that you tried to talk to as many people as possible about Jesus. Uh, If you're an introvert and that sounds like a nightmare, join the club because that was one of my least favorite things and and I did not look forward to starting up a conversation with strangers. But anyway, we got used to doing this because we probably had to do this at least once a semester, if not more, depending on the class. So a classmate and I and a group of others were, were wandering around, I think was Ridgedale at the time, And uh, he wore a shirt that all it said on the front was, God's word is the answer. And he kind of hoped this would serve as a conversation starter or a continuer. Uh, And uh, we ended up striking up a conversation with a man who looked to me like he was probably dragged to the mall with his wife and his daughter, and he was just looking to survive. Uh, There's not a lot of mutual upside in this conversation to start off with, but he agreed to talk with us, and as we kind of stumbled through our more or less prepared script, he finally broke the ice and and looked at my friend, and he said, what is the question? And and that was so far off what we expected, we we, we had no idea what to say, and uh, my friend said, well, what do you mean? And he pointed, touched him in the chest, and said, you can't tell me God's word is the answer if you tell, don't tell me what the question is. And uh, we were so caught off guard by that, we didn't know how to respond, and, and the man was very 
polite, and he winked at us, and he went his own way. I, to this day, uh, believe that man was a Christian and was encouraging us to do a better job. Uh, That's why I'm going. The the man was fair, and he was polite, and I kind of chuckle as I have this memory. We're going to flip back to Psalm 119 now, because Psalm 119, more or less, says the same thing. God's word is the answer. Psalm 19 is a giant poem dedicated to the praise of God's word. But but much like my friend and I and our group of students uh, decades ago at Ridgedale, we as Christians often miss the question. Why is God's word the answer? Why is God's word praiseworthy? In our little eight-verse stanza this morning, we find two primary ways in which God's word is the answer. The first is that God's word communicates God's design. Now, as I mentioned before, Psalm 119 is a long poem dedicated to the praise of God's Word. And Psalm 119 almost always focuses on God's law. The instructions, the rules, the commands, the statutes, the precepts, and all the other synonyms that the psalmist uses to describe God's instruction. And that's for good reason. God's design both for us and for the world, is perfectly wise. And this is where we get ourselves into a little trouble right away as God's children, because I think far too many of us view God's law, first of all, as just some random set of rules. More and more I think of it, when I'm not thinking intentionally about God's word, and especially about his instruction, I think most of God's rules kind of fill the same space in my brain as the rule that you don't eat or you don't go swimming until 30 minutes after you eat. You you think about that rule makes absolutely no sense. It seems like a generically good idea, but what happens if you jump in the pool at minute 28? You okay? You know, what, what's the real threshold? You know, like, it's generally wise not to try to swim on a full stomach. But where's the line? And so 30 minutes is this arbitrary line that was set, and I think, if we're honest with ourselves, that's how God's rules sound to us. They're generally wise, but maybe weirdly specific. Right, so we look at God's word in Psalm 119 in, in, in the psalmist, and you know what, I'm going to just keep saying it's David, so we're going to roll that it's David even though it's not specifically identified. You know, David praises all of these precepts, all of these rules, all of these laws, but that becomes a problem for us because we get this vague sense that God's rules are there, and so they must be for something. And so we lull ourselves into this idea that God's Word is this great, giant instruction manual for life. Now this makes maybe even more sense if you've had the good pleasure, and, and maybe guys, you're the only ones who can sympathize with it. You have the good pleasure of getting a new piece of equipment. 
There's almost nothing more delightful in life than getting a, a new piece of machinery, or especially, at least for me, uh, Mike, I know you're on pit board with it, a new tool. There's nothing better in life than a new power tool. Uh, last year, I got myself a new surface planer. I, I probably have no need for a surface planer, but it was awesome. And the only thing I wanted to do is start running wood through it. I did not want to read the instructions. They're there for when something goes wrong. And this is level two of our confusion with God's laws. Right? First is, is the don't swim 30 minutes after you eat, weirdly specific. Second is break glass in case for emergency. The instruction manual is there only for when we screw something up. But we have this idea that God's word, the Bible, is some great instruction manual for life. This is where we have to pause and clarify. God's Word does contain wisdom. God's Word contains practical advice for many areas in life. But the problem with that is the more God's Word tells us what we should be doing and how we should be doing it, the more God's Word tells us that we're failing. For every piece of instruction, for every rule, for every law, for every command, for every statute, for every precept, and whatever other word David uses in the Psalms for God's law, every one of those things is something that we can and do fail at. Because we're sinners. And we break God's law because we're sinners. And in doing so, we sin more. And we're frequently disobeying God. We're frequently ignoring His advice. We're frequently taking His design for granted and giving ourselves God's job description and trying to do what we want in the way that we want when we want to do it. And then if we rewind, and our relationship with God's Word is that God's Word is the be-all, end-all instruction manual for life, the only answer we can come up with when we screw up is to do more, try harder, and to be better. But it seems as the more we do, and the harder we try, the more we fail. And the more we fail and the more we fail. I really debated this week to extend the epistle lesson that Jeremy read all the way through Psalm or uh, Romans 7. Because the half of Romans 7 we didn't read, Paul spells out exactly what I'm talking about. We, we read the part that said, I wouldn't know what coveting was until the Bible told me don't covet. And suddenly I realized I covet all the time. And Paul goes on to write, I don't do the thing I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. And this is this constant death spiral of God's word telling me what is good and right and pure and me not doing it because I am selfish and unholy and self-centered. But this is the point. God's word is designed to do this. And that's what we miss about his law. Unlike the 30-minute buffer period, and unlike the break glass in case of emergency instruction manual for your lawnmower, 
God's word is there specifically to show you when you're failing. That's the goal. Every time God gives you a rule, he's pointing out where you've gone out of bounds. He wants you to see that. He wants you to know that. God needs you to know that you're a sinner. But why would he do this? Why would he continually point out your failures and my failures? Is he capricious or vindictive or cruel? Is he some terrible taskmaster? No. Rather, God's word has a second purpose, a second reality. And that's God's word communicates God's deliverance. The psalmist here, David, he speaks of God's deliverance in this little section of Psalm 119 in three separate ways. First, he prays to be redeemed. And and this word means to be freed from bondage. That's that's what the word here in the psalm means. Now, there's a couple of different ways we could understand the appeal. If indeed this is David, we could really understand that he's under attack from his enemies, that he's being pursued. That happened multiple times in David's life. And here again in Psalm 119, he identifies his enemies and his persecutors and his attackers. And we could go back and look at all the times in David's life when Saul pursued him and then when Absalom pursued him. And David was almost constantly at war. In fact, David was not permitted by God to build the temple because he was always shedding blood. And we would be right to see, well, this is very specific. It's very personal. And we would want to see it that way. But we also need to remember that these verses are in the Bible for a reason. That they're a gift to the entire church, to the entire body of the children of God. And while many of us have been attacked by others in some way, shape, or form, not to the extent of David probably, Uh, We don't have enemies in that way. So there's another truth for us to find in here. Uh, Another uh, reality that God is explaining to us. And that's the reality of our slavery to sin. This is how God speaks about sin in His Word. Jesus taught anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. David knew that. David felt his sin maybe more acutely than anyone else in the Bible. Read about his response when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan over his adultery with Bathsheba. Read about the conviction of sin he went under after he disobeyed God and conducted the census anyway. David knew the overpowering guilt of his sin. And so do we. But more importantly, as we keep our eyes on Psalm 119, so does God. God knows the seriousness and the breadth and the depth of our sin. God is aware of the consequences of our sins because he's the one who put them in his word in the first place. 
And so the psalmist prays for redemption. Then he prays for life, which also makes sense because apart from our sin, our greatest enemy is death. That's not breaking news to anyone here, but God's word also reminds us that death is caused by our sin. Well, a little bit earlier in Romans than our epistle lesson this morning, and we read the wages of sin is death. God has intended for his word to bring us life. David knows this. And so he prays for life. Just as God's word delivers to us the reality of the death that sin causes us, God's word delivers us life. Finally then, David asks for protection from his enemies from the wicked, from the persecutors, from his adversaries, and from the faithless, those who deal in treachery and deceit. The answer is, how can God's word help us here? How can God's word help us in any of this? How is God's word the answer? Maybe some words of encouragement and hope. Maybe some instruction to correct and amend our lives. And to think positively, some practical wisdom for overcoming and outlasting our opponents? Not really. That's not where David's going. That's not where the Holy Spirit is taking us. God's word is the answer because God's word delivers God's mercy. That's the entire point of this section in the Psalms. That's the entire point of God's Word. God's Word delivers God's mercy. And even as God points out your sin, even as God brings you to the conviction of sin and lets you know what a horrible person you are, even then, God is being merciful. Because He can't forgive your sins If you don't know, you need to repent. He can't give you mercy unless you cry out for mercy. And so God sends his word to you to do that. And then God sends his word to you to bring you to life, to deliver you his mercy. And he does this because in his word, he delivers his son. God's word tells you about Jesus Christ, the man who is God and the God who is man, who took your place on the cross and died the death that you deserve so that you might be forgiven. And God's word tells you how that same person, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead three days later to give you victory over death. And God's word tells you that every force of evil Every adversary, anyone who would persecute you because you are a Christian, they are defeated foes. And even if you suffer in this life, even if you feel the weight of persecution or the judgment of others, God's word delivers eternity to you. An eternity that is so much better than our present day sufferings. So we return to that thought. 
God's word is the answer. The question is, do you need to be saved? Do you need to be forgiven? Do you need a savior? Do you need eternal life? There, God's word is the answer. The answer is yes. Amen. And now, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.